Welcome back to the program. I can't even count the number of times that guests on this program have spoken about what's become known as the marshmallow experiments. In conversations ranging from business to public policy to personal psychology, the impact of this experiment in determining self-control, executive function, predilection for addiction, and even intelligence has been profound. My guest, Walter Michel, started thinking about this experiment when he was in graduate school. Later in the 60s at Stanford, he devised what would become known as the marshmallow experiment to assess the ability of children to delay gratification. Since then, 50 years of in-depth research have both enhanced and expanded the scope and knowledge that began with that simple experiment. Walter Michel is the world's leading expert on self-control. He is considered one of the most distinguished psychologists of the 20th century, and he currently holds the Robert Johnston Niven Chair as Professor of Humane Letters and Psychology at Columbia University. He's the author of more than 200 scientific papers, and his new book is The Marshmallow Test, Mastering Self-Control. It is my pleasure to welcome Walter Michel to the program today. Walter, thanks so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to have you here. You have been working in this area and looking at these issues for over 50 years now. And yet at this particular moment in time, there seems to be, I would argue, as much if not more interest than ever in the work that you've done and the, the research that you've done What is it in the culture right now that that has created such interest, such awareness of this work? Uh, I think uh, there are many things that are happening in the culture that are actually connecting to what is happening in the science. Um, Let me speak first to the science end. Uh, The reason that I uh, decided to write The Marshmallow Test uh, as a as a book for general audience now is because I think the findings that have come from mind-brain behavior science, including from the new genetics, you know, what's called epigenetics, are so exciting and so profound that they actually change the conception of human nature, of who we are and who we can be and how we can get there. So I think that, that there is an awareness in the general public that much is being learned about how, how the brain and how the mind uh, enable us to be agentic and to, to acquire uh, self-control, to uh, be able to use our minds and brains uh, to uh, actively and agentically influence how our lives play out. And I think at the same time in the culture, there has been such an increase through the wonderful information technology revolution to the number of temptations, to the number of buttons that we can push, to the number of things that we can um, buy, uh, that we can get access to, uh, that the need for self-discipline, for self-control, for taking the future into account uh, has also never been greater. So I think there's an important juxtaposition between the needs that are perceived that all of us have as we see our children and grandchildren and so on uh, struggling to make lives um, are, are connecting nicely with what the science is finding about the, uh, the strategies and the mechanisms that enable people to have self-control and to influence how their lives play out. And part of what is taking place in the culture, as you touched on, is this infinite, it seems, variety of choices, and the public being told repeatedly that we don't have to make those choices, that if we're clever enough, we can have it all. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, uh, the the belief that you can have it all is certainly uh, uh, common. Um, 
I, I can't I can't quarrel with that. It is it is something that's widely believed. Talk a little bit about one of the things that you've done in moving this experiment forward, and particularly with some of the original subjects that came back, is this ability to do fMRI and really see from a scientific perspective and a brain perspective, as you were talking about earlier, how and why all of this is working the way it does. Um, I think that uh, what we uh, lucked into uh, when we developed the the, the marshmallow test um, is uh, something that actually c- captures uh, what is now called in neuroscience executive function or executive control. Uh, let me just say a word or two about what the marshmallow test really is mm-hmm. because it's widely widely misunderstood. Uh, it's it's a situation where, first of all, trust is built up in the child because trust is enormously important. So the researcher and the and the child develop a relationship in which the child knows that she can count on the researchers coming back the moment she rings the bell. The child also has all three goodies, whatever the child has chosen, both the two that she gets if she waits for the researcher to come back or decides to ring the bell on her own, if she rings the bell on her own, she only gets the one right away, or she can start eating the one right away. So the choice is between waiting for the researcher whom she trusts to come back by himself or ringing that bell or starting to eat the cookie or the marshmallows or whatever it is that she's picked from a variety of treats uh, right away. And the measure is the seconds of waiting time uh, that, it, uh, that she's willing to delay. Now, in order to do that, what she's got to do is to keep the delayed goal in mind. I'm waiting for the two cookies or I'm waiting for the two marshmallows. She has to inhibit all the interfering responses. I can't think how yummy and chewy and sweet those marshmallows will be. I can't touch and ring the bell. So she has to inhibit the interfering responses and she has to use her attentional skills to monitor her progress and to do the wonderful things that the kids do while they're waiting, to enable them to wait. For example, to self-distract and to create their own distractions, not only to look away from the goodies, but to invent ways of making an otherwise effortful and very stressful and frustrating situation manageable. For example, in California, they, they take off their thongs and they, uh, uh, they start playing on their uh, toes as if they were piano keys, or they start singing little songs, or this is my home in Redwood City, or they start exploring their nasal canals and their ear cavities and toying with the products. Uh, it's, it's a really, when you see what those kids are doing, you see the various strategies that enable uh, self-control. But the point in answer to your question is that the measure, I think, captures executive function, the ability to keep a delayed goal in mind, to inhibit interfering responses, and to use attention control in order to make the situation bearable. So those, those are the three steps, and because I think it captures that, and we can now see how that works in the brain when people are in the fMRI scanner, uh, that, I think, is what underlies both the predictive ability uh, of the measure, and more importantly, for us to be able to identify the specific skills that enable executive function. And the most exciting thing that comes out of the work is that we have demonstrated over and over again 
that rather than having self-control and willpower be a broad trait that you either have or you don't because you're born with it, it is something where, although we differ greatly in how hard or easy self-control is for us, it's teachable and it's learnable and it can begin to be taught as early as preschool. It can be modeled by parents and it can enormously uh, influence how lives play out. So for me, the, the best news about it and the reason that it remains in the public eye is because the kinds of cognitive and emotional skills that enable self-discipline, that enable self-control, are being identified with increasing precision. And one of the things that we're finding is the way in which self-control can exist in certain areas of our lives and not necessarily in other areas. Well, I mean, uh, I think that... uh, uh, It's evident from the headlines that regularly appear in the news and the stories that regularly appear on NPR uh, that the same individuals who are able to exert terrific self-control, for example, former presidents of the United States (laughs) uh, uh, and great sports heroes like Tiger Woods, who obviously have tremendous attention control skills, tremendous self-control ability, otherwise they could not possibly have achieved what they achieved in their lives. Uh, also have areas in which they are not exerting self-control. Now, some of that is volitional because they may choose not to. They may decide that they're exempt from uh, the rules that other people might prefer to follow and so on. So it's not simply a matter of do you have self-control skills, but also do you have the motivation to use them in different situations. And we vary tremendously in what our hotspots are. Uh, For kids, it may be uh, marshmallows. Uh, For the rest of us, uh, as we we develop over time, the hotspots differ. How much of it is a balancing act that goes on in the brain between what you talk about as these hot and cold areas that to exercise, for example, let's take the the political example that, that you talk about, Bill Clinton, for example, or Tiger Woods, that in order to, to have the kind of discipline and self-control in one area, that it creates the need almost for, for looseness and lack of self-control in another area? Well, I think that we differ greatly in our entitlement theories and that uh, we, we all know what it is to, to feel uh, sufficiently fatigued at the end of the day, for example, to not want to exert self-control, to instead... Uh, relax or watch television or or whatever. Uh, One of the things that I think is important here is that we all differ in the standards that we use about what is the point at which you don't want to self-control, what is the point at which you want to ring the bell and eat the marshmallows. And I think allowing ourselves to to do that is, is terribly important because I think a life without um, without um, uh, self, without gratification of life in which we're constantly waiting or working uh, for the marshmallows uh, can be as sad and unfulfilling as a life in which um, we don't have self-control uh, when we need it and when we want it. Um, so I, I'm not sure that this is a matter when when one decides uh, in a particular area uh, I'm going to I'm uh, going to not be exerting self-control, I'm going to pleasure myself, Uh, that's not necessarily because uh, you're unable to because you've run out of uh, the ability to delay, but that you've chosen uh, that it's time to, you know, have have that piece of fudge cake or 
to, to indulge. This goes to this idea of looking at it in a macro sense in terms of the self-control and the executive function we exercise and really bringing it down to the little things that we do every day, those little things that can set up either the positive or the negative habits for us. If we do an exercise self-control in small areas, for example, or the reverse, exercise lack of self-control in small areas, that it can set us up for how we look at the big picture. Well, I don't, I, I, I don't have uh, research or, or experience that really speaks uh, to, that, uh, to that particular point. But I think what is terribly important is to, uh, to develop a strong life goals, burning mm-hmm. goals, that really are what drive your life story. And when we have those burning goals, we are then willing and uh, to uh, to exert the effort and to uh, to put in the work uh, that's required uh, to go to them because the rewards that we are getting for it are really intrinsic. For example, someone who uh, one of my uh, experiences on the on the book tour has been to to have the opportunity to meet with some rock stars. Now you don't think of rock stars usually as being models of self-discipline. <laughs> But actually, when you when you think about people in detail, like Bruce Springsteen or, or, or other stars of that kind, their lives are full of hard work and of, and of self-discipline. They also may, of course, have other areas in which they're ready to have a fling or whatever. Uh, but that, I think, those, those discriminations, those judgments are, are part of being a complex human being. The effort that is required, the hard, the hard work that's required, um, is is enormous for uh, for creating um, a a life that has a vitality and in which you are uh, successful. Uh, when Bruce uh, Springsteen was asked in an interview, not by me, but reported by uh, by by others, um, about what what got him to be who he is, he said, uh, "I worked harder than anybody else." And so I think that self control and effort. Uh, and hard work uh, are deeply connected and are really uh, guided uh, by by having uh, goals that are formed fairly early in life uh, that one then pursues with vigor and with enthusiasm and that make, quote, willpower a lot easier uh, and a lot less effortful. And in many ways, the success builds upon itself. The other side of this coin that you talk about is the impact of stress on situations and how stress sometimes leads to bad decision-making. I think that's a terribly important point. Uh, the more we understand about how the brain works, uh, we realize that there really are two, two interconnected, closely connected systems in the brain. Uh, a primitive hot system that's essentially the limbic system uh, in, the, in the parts of the brain that developed earliest in our evolution as human beings. And that, that system, that hot system, is reflexive rather than reflective. It's quick, it's immediate. We have it from the time that we get into the world. Uh, it's emotional, uh, and it is what gets us to uh, grab the marshmallow uh, it was crucially important in evolution because it got us to survive under very difficult conditions uh, on the savanna. And it's important uh, in contemporary life because it gets us to throw on the brakes automatically when we see an oncoming car. Uh, but 
The heart system is also what has us vulnerable to every kind of temptation, to every kind of heart stimulus that can control us. The cool system, which is in the prefrontal cortex and which developed later in our evolutionary course, um, the, that, that cool system, which is reflective rather than reflexive, which is cognitive rather than purely emotional, which is slower to activate, which is essential for planning, for taking the future into account, um, for examining the consequences of our action long-term, is what is critical for self-discipline and self-control. And the challenge in trying to, to develop self-control is how to regulate and tame the heart system uh, with the cool system. And uh, one of the things that my book deals with in considerable detail is what the strategies are, what the kinds of plans are, what the habit-changing uh, formulas are, really, for enabling the cool system to regulate the heart system when you want it to. Not all the time, but when you want it to and when you need it to. The goal being to actually have real choice. Uh, it, to me, the important thing is not whether or not the child goes for the marshmallow fast or not, but as long as the child has the ability to wait for it, if that's what he wants to. Is there a relationship between these two parts of the brain that, that as one goes up, the other goes down and vice versa? Absolutely. They're constantly interacting. And the critical point here is that with stress, the hot system goes up and the cool system goes down. And when people are experiencing chronic stress or living in environments of, of chronic toxic stress, as many children do and as many adults do under circumstances uh, in which there's, for example, extreme poverty, uh, the high stress levels uh, make the heart system really become dominant and prevent the development and the use of the cool system. So in terms of uh, the implications for public policy and for, uh, for social change, it's critical uh, to be able to reduce the the heart system by reducing stress levels whenever possible. And stress, long-term stress, is of course poisonous, uh, not only for the cool system, but for one's health and for one's well-being. I want to talk about the predictive aspect of all of this, because one of the parts of the book really deals with looking at these original students that you dealt with at Stanford and going back and seeing how their lives have turned out and what this test really can tell us in a predictive sense about the lives that these people have led. Talk a little about that. Well, uh, we, we sort of stumbled into the follow-up studies uh, when I uh, began to see that there are uh, connections between the uh, seconds that a child is waiting in the uh, so-called marshmallow test uh, situation uh, and outcomes uh, 10, 12 years later uh, in adolescence where we found uh, connections between seconds of waiting time and SAT scores, for instance, and parental and teacher ratings of how well the child is dealing with uh, frustration, uh, how well the child is able to sustain goal, goal pursuit even when it becomes difficult and when there are setbacks. In other words, how much what is now called a grit the, the child seems to have, how well the child is doing uh, 
cognitively in school and socially in peer relationships. So we found those connections uh, to uh, around age 16, 17. And then in the further follow-up, we found things like a connection between seconds of waiting time uh, and body mass index, in which the longer the delay, the lower the body mass index at about age 30 or 32. And then in the brain study that you mentioned, we also find differences uh, between kids who consistently delay gratification over the developmental course, that is, they're still doing it in adolescence, they're still doing it at 30, that in turn seems to be predicting uh, differences in uh, how their brain areas uh, are activating when they're dealing uh, with temptations uh, while their brains are being scanned in the scanner when these kids return mm -hmm. to Stanford. But to me, the, the most important aspect about the follow-up studies is that they revealed also that the ability to delay gratification has protective effects. So, for example, for kids who are prone to highly aggressive acting out behavior, those with uh, the ability to distract themselves, for example, while they're waiting for M&Ms, more M&Ms later, are also able to cool the heart system more and to, even if they are predisposed towards aggression, uh, to be less violent, less extreme in their aggression than kids who are not able to, to cool it, to, to slow down, uh, to activate the cool system, and to think and take the delayed consequences of things like extreme aggression. For example, mm -hmm. hitting a counselor on the head with a flashlight and giving her a concussion uh, into account before they enact such a behavior. So they're both predictive and protective cons uh, effects of delayability. But to me, I want to emphasize again, the most important finding and the one that is the most fundamental motivation for my writing the book now is the discovery that the cognitive and emotional skills that enable self-control and that enable delay of gratification can be taught both in parenting practices and in educational practices and in therapeutic applications, and that this can be done in ways that can be relatively simple and highly effective. Is there any link that has been found in the research between the gratification aspect of this and creativity later on, beyond just the executive function? Yeah, I think that it's very easy to misinterpret self-control uh, and self-discipline as if it were something that only goes sort of with a tight uh, life, mm -hmm. you know, that it's great if you're going to be, uh, you know, a mathematician perhaps, but uh, 